Alright, welcome to the Scottish Clans Podcast. I'm Clint Edwards, and I wanted to share with you all some things that I found. If you're looking at the title of this episode and you're thinking, oh, we finally got that technology and he's got, uh, he's figured out how to get guests on here, um, you're wrong. I'm really sorry to disappoint you, but um, there's a, I've got part of the money saved up for that thing, and I still need to get the rest of it. So... Um, what I want to share with you is some things from a book that I have called Court, Kirk, and Community, Scotland, 1470 to 1625 by Jenny Warmald. And this, I was, I have this book and I'll actually include in the, in the, in the show notes, but maybe, but for sure on the Scottish Clans Facebook group, I will include an, a link to Amazon on how to pick this up because that's how I got it was through Amazon and I would like to I was I was in in through here and I'd, I've read through it before in fact back in the episode is your clan really a clan something to that, to that effect I probably quoted from this but it's been that was that episode was quite a while in the rearview mirror and I still get comments listener feedback comments on posts on Facebook that I've made that indicate that um, this is this information is worth going over again. Now you're probably asking, who is Jenny Warmald? Jenny Warmald is well was she she's passed away. She passed away on the on nine on the ninth of December, two thousand fifteen. She was a, a professor. She was. A, um, part of the fellowship of the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers, and Commerce. She was a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, and she, she was a Scottish historian who studied late medieval and early mo- early modern Scotland. That's the Facebook, or not the Facebook, the the Wikipedia intro to her. Now, so the book that I have that I just mentioned to you, it was published. Let's see. 1981. So it's it's a little the book is a little aged, but it's not like it's not aged in the realm of holy cow, all this new scientific stuff has come out since then, like like a DNA sort of thing. So I I believe that this information is still pretty current or relevant as it was back when it was first published. So I I thought I came across this. I found some things that I had marked in here, and I based on some things that I've I've seen through listener feedback and other other um it was mostly listener feedback and, and it's and it's been in between that episode is your clan really a clan and now in fact it's been pretty recently and so i think man this would be worth visiting again and so what i'm going to do right now is i'm just going to read from the this book i'm going to start on page 29 and what i'm going to read to you talks about the time so that i gave you the time period it's 1470 to 1625 so that's the the time period in Scottish history that this would be relevant to, and it's it's interesting because the the kind of comments that I'm responding to here with this information are things about the nature of kinship or or were you are you a clan or are you not a clan, especially as regards to Highlands and Lowlands. Um, the if you go back, this is not this episode is not meant to be a replacement for that previous episode that I mentioned. However. Um, we are going to cover some of the same ground, but we're going to dial it in a lot more specific because in that episode, I was much more broad with my sources, and um, I, we, we, yeah, we, just, we just covered a lot of more ground topically as it relates to this, we covered a lot more examples, but with this, we're just going to top, uh, cover this one source, but we're going to dive into it a little bit more. I'm going to share more from this source than I shared in that previous episode. And I'm just, and basically, I'm just going to read it to you, and and then if, and also that would not be a replacement for actually buying the book because this is a, a pretty good book if you want to understand Scotland during a pretty crucial time period where the Scot where the clans were in full swing. So if you're if you're listening to this podcast because you're interested in learning about the clans during a during a time period where most of the historical information that we have on them comes from, 
then this is a great book. Keep in mind, when we talk about the clans of Scotland, we, we are generally not talking about 800s Scotland. Now, there are some clans that have a pretty strong tie back in that can, that can claim to have a pretty solid link back into that time period. I'm thinking specifically of the Macduffs of Fife. They're very closely related to the ruling kindred of, of the, well, the McAlpin dynasty. They're very close, closely related to them, and that's why they earned the place of being able to crown the king of Scotland. And that was an honor given to them. And maybe, I think it was John Bannerman that, that suggested that might have happened on account of giving, giving them that such a royal high privilege as, a, as an offering to maybe it's a place of honor within the kingdom and hopefully that would keep them happy and not challenge the current dynasty that was in place, the McAlpin dynasty. And you can get more into that by going into that book that I actually quoted that in my last, that, that source, John Bannerman's book, Kinship, Church, and Culture. I quoted that in, my, in the, last, um, the last episode. So there's more on that there, but the McDuffs could probably claim a pretty strong link back into the 800s-ish. Um, who else might be able to do that? And don't, by the way, don't confuse the Macduffs of Fife, the Earls of Fife, with the Macduffies of the Western Isles. They're two different kin group, kin groups, although they have the same surname. And I want to cover that maybe once again. That there are some, there's some clans that if you have that surname, you, you, you're you're probably from a specific kin group, like Ogilvy. That was not a common, found all over the place, patronymic that was very common throughout Scotland. If you had the last name of Ogilvy, it's probably one specific kindred that you come from. It's a very unique name. However, if your last name's Duncan, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're descended from the Athol kindred, uh, Clan Donaghy, that also became known as the Robertsons of Struan. And I'm just looking at my dog right now, and she's racked out asleep, and she is twitching and running, and I would just... That'd be really interesting to know what kind of a dream she's having right now. Anyway, I digress. So yeah, I, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, head of another clan that has really strong links back that far, but I, I can't really think of, of anything. The, uh, the, Mc, the McRory's, the McDonald's, the McDougal's, like we mentioned last episode, they can trace back to Summerlid really, really well. I mean, they're not that far removed in genealogy um, from Summerlid, who was in the, running around the mid-1100s. Also, I mentioned the pedigree, and the, the point of the last po- the episode podcast was the descendants of Anerhan. And now, if that WDH seller believes that their pedigree is correct, and if it is correct, it goes back to the O'Neill royal dynasty of Northern Ireland, which then means that it can go back a lot farther than that as well. So, so there's a couple of kindreds, but but that's the exception, not the rule, really. Um. This time period that this book covers, most of the stuff that we talk about clans, most of the clan stories that we've told on this episode, one of the most of the clan histories that you're familiar with, I mean, think of any iconic clan story, legend, history, and it probably comes out of this time period, 1470 to 1625. That's why I think this is such a good book to read. Um, For example... Oh, I'm a McGregor, and I'm going to learn, oh, the first thing I learned about the McGregors is that they are outlawed. Well, when did that happen? Early 1600s, inside the realm of this book. Uh, let's see, what else? The famous Campbell-McDonald feud. When did that happen? Inside the realm of this book. One of the most of the events happened be- in the feud between the Camerons and the Macintoshes during the time period of this book. I say most. It's technically started a little bit before this, but most of the stuff that we have, the stories, the battles, the conflicts that they had between those two clans during that feud happened in this book. Uh, the feud between the Gordons and the Forbes. This time period. Same time period. So, so a pretty good time period to study when you're talking specifically about clans. You want to get into Jacobite stuff, then this is a little too early for that. And a lot of you, you're perhaps you're listening to this because you're, you watched Outlander and you got all wound up on Jacobite stuff. And, and that's cool. That's cool. 
I don't mean to, to have any hint of disparagement in my voice or, or derision, if, if that, but that's a later time period for sure. All right, so I'm going to start reading on page 29, and I'm just going to read, and, and in, in the middle of things, as thoughts occur to me, I'm just going to make brief interruptions in the quoting of this, of this specific the source here. Okay, so Dr. Warmald says the fundamental, okay, quoting now, the fundamental bonds of society were forged not through land, but through kinship and personal lordship. So strong were they that at least one 16th century commentator assessed the power of the nobility not just on their landed wealth, but also on the number of men in their followings, which could be even more important. Thus, Lord Ogilvy was, quote, a man of no great living, but of a good number of landed men of his surname, parentheses, kindred, which makes his power in Angus the greater, unquote. While the Earl of Glencairn, now pausing the quote real quick, the Earl of Glencairn would have been a Cunningham, so back to the quote, while the Earl of Glencairn, though crippled by mortgages, where with some of his ancestors have entangled a good part thereof, nevertheless had reasonable great power because of his surname and friends. Given an attitude like this, continuity among the people at the top of local society mattered even more than geographic cohesion of their estates. For loyalty to a family or lord was personal loyalty whereas land had become the basis of a legal and fiscal relationship between landlord and tenant. Kinship survived as the basic form of obligation in local society, partly because the crown never challenged it, and partly because of the nature of, Scot of the Scottish kin group. Okay, now I'm going to pause real quick. I want you to listen to this because this explains the, the way that the Scots did kinship, and he's going to talk about what the term agnatic kinship is. So this is important to quote. It was agnatic, that is, dependent on an ancestor, whether real or mythical, in the male line, and recognized as a bond between male representatives. Females, mothers, sisters, daughters, were not part of this bond. They were added to or removed from the kin group by marriage. Women retained their own family name when they married, which reflected the fact that a marriage alliance might create or reinforce a bond of friendship between two kindreds, but it did not create ties of kinship. The strength of agnatic kinship was that it avoided the problems of conflicting loyalties, which weakened the alternative form, cognatic kinship, in which both paternal and maternal relatives were included in the kindred, and brothers-in-law, for example, had equal claims with full brothers. Pa uh, pause on the quote real quick. So just to be clear, in case you got mixed up there on that, the, the cognatic kinship, which the Scots did not practice, had the problems where brothers-in-law could have equal claim on some inheritance stuff as regular full brothers. That's, that's not what the Scots are doing. The Scots are doing agnatic kinship where they did not have that problem. Okay, back to the quote. Moreover, the kin group was readily identifiable, at least in the lowlands, because of the use of the surname, which provided a simple method of distinguishing, distinguishing those who were one's kin from those who were not. Indeed, the word surname or name became synonymous with kindred. The other factor which dictated ties of kin was geographic unity. The Gordons, despite their outlying estates in Perthshire and Berwickshire, were a northern kin group. Distance made fulfillment of the obligations of kinship difficult to the point where they could be disregarded. Okay, so let me pause real quick here in the quoting. Let's talk about two of the main groups they just talked about. They talked about, well, three. Let's talk. Let's discuss, discuss all three of them that we've covered right, right here. I find them very fascinating. I find these areas on the margin of they're neither wholly in one side nor wholly in the other side. 
let's start with the most recent and work back from what we just discussed, the Gordons. Gordons are a fascinating group. They're based out of the lowlands. The Earl of Huntley, who was the chief over, over all of the Gordons, their, their main line, their many branches, the Earl of Huntley, his, his stronghold, which once upon a time I believe was referred to as Strathbogie. Now don't get that confused with the Earl, Earl of Strathbogie and there's some other stuff going on there, but it became, became known as, as Huntley Castle. And that is a lowland estate. Now the, the Gordons did have quite a lot of, of personal territory that they directly owned in the Highlands and, and would have the occupants thereon would have been Gaelic speaking. And then they also had other places in the Highlands where their titles and estates and responsibilities handed to them by the crown. It, so it wasn't specifically their territory, but they were responsible for things that were going on in that area. So they had, they were very influential in those areas, and they had a lot of dealings in those areas. Yet they were not a Highland clan necessarily. So, and I've always wondered, and I wonder if I could track this down. Here's a question to throw out to you, the listener is would the Gordons have, it seems to me they'd have, to, at least at least, some of them would have learned Gaelic. Anyway, I just, I, just, I think, so, th- so that's one group. But here, Dr. Warmald, they are a northern kin group. The Gordons were part of the kin-based society, okay? Now let's, let's backtrack to the next one in the middle, the Earls of Glencairn, the Cunninghams. It talks about that even though they, their wealth was not great, their, the, whoever was quoting at that time period was talking about the previous ancestors of the Earls of Glencairn, of the, of the current Earl of Glencairn, whatever time period that was. I didn't look back at the footnote and find exactly, exactly the year it's talking about, but earlier Earls of Glencairn had squandered money, and the current Earl was, was not fabulously wealthy, yet, yet... He had a very strong following. Let me go back and actually turn the page back and actually read the exact words it uses for him. Um, Nevertheless, had reasonable great power because of his surname and friends. So the Cunninghams. Now the Cunninghams are not a, a in this border territory that I'm talking about, like the Gordons. The the Cunninghams were solidly a lowland kindred, and we see them existing here in this kin-based society. Now, I do have a, an episode farther back, and I, I didn't bother to find out which one that was, but it, if you, my, my episodes, I try to make them as straightforward as possible with the title so they're easy to find the, the main subject. And I did do an episode on the feud between the Montgomerys and the Cunninghams, and that feud happened in a kin-based society. So now we're tying in the, Mont- the Montgomerys, of, I think, Ardrossan? No. What was the name of their... Maybe it was Ard, Ardrossan? Maybe? I can't remember the, where they were, the, the name of their their title, where, where that was out of, but the Montgomerys, it's they're an Ayrshire kindred, and that feud they had with the Cunningham would have been carried out in a kin-based society. Now... Well, I'll, I'll just I'll I'll add that comment I was about to share here at the end. Let, before I do that, let's cover the one. Go back on the last group there it mentioned, and that was the Ogilvies. Now the Ogilvies are are like the Gordons in this respect, in that they are their territory straddled the Highland Lowland line. Now keep in mind also, I've I've mentioned this before. We like to keep everything in their nice tidy compartments, and this fits cleanly over in here, and this fits cleanly over here, and the Highlands, you can, the Highland line, at least between, let's say, Perthshire or Athol, that, that area, where, where those Highlands end, and like, Fife, in the, the, per, the lowland Perthshire area, where that, that, that part of the Highland lowland line is very, very easy to see. If you look at a topographical map, it's clear where the map, that's, there's a, and I don't know, it's probably because, and I'm sure one of you guys know the answer to this real, much better than I do, but I'm guessing there's a fault line right there. I know that the Great Glen that has Loch Ness in it and Loch Lochy, that is a fault line. But I'm also guessing, I'm, I'm just, I don't know this for sure, but that that's a fault line, but it is clear. Now, what is not clear is where 
Gallic, especially in this time period, and I've, I've done some reading on, on where Gallic is spoken and not spoken at certain time periods in history, and at this, where the, where the Ogilvies, the Ogilvies had, had Gallic, had territory in Gallic-speaking areas, and I don't know, I'm, I'm assuming that probably for the, the chiefs of the Ogilvies, I'm assuming that their first language was Scots. So not to be confused with Scots Gaelic or Scottish Gaelic. It's Scots. Scots would have been a... a it seems to me like an, a more archaic form of English. And it, and it has some similarities with the language that was spoken in Northern England. But it was a... Some people argue whether it's a dialect or a different language altogether, and I don't, I'm not jumping into that, and I haven't studied enough to have strong feelings one way or the other, and somebody will probably respond with some really strong feelings on it, and that's fine. Um, just make sure that either you are a professional in that area or you're citing professional because your opinion and your emotions, I'm not, I'm not trying to dive into that, that world. So, which, which, you know, when we're dealing with family opinions and emotions that has always been a part of this game right um, I just want to know what was really going on so were the chiefs of the Ogilvies it'd be interesting to find out whether they were actually Scots speaking or, or Gaelic speaking and it, and maybe that really depends on the time period but maybe just within the time period that this book covers the last quarter of the 1400s and into the first quarter of the 1600s Anyway, the Ogilvies, I think, is really interesting, yet here they're clearly identified as a, um, as a kindred that is, they're, that a, they're a group that's existing in a kin-based society. And I just dropped the book. So, um, yeah, but I've been on this book in this part of it long enough and read through it deep enough that it just goes right back to the same spot. So that was easy to get back. So the Olvis, man of no great living, so he was not wealthy, but of a good number of landed men of his surname, in parentheses, kindred, which makes his power in Angus the greater. So here, Dr. Warmald is talking about the back and forth, and so whether somebody's powerful and influential, it's, it's yeah, it's nice if they got all sorts of land and, and are wealthy, but she says that that kin-based following really was telling on how powerful they really were. They could get a ton done if they had a lot of guys that were loyal to them. All right, so I'm going to jump back into this book and, and start and continue with the quotation here, all right? I'm going to pick up in the last sentence that I read, which is the last sentence in the paragraph, and then I'm going to go into the next paragraph and go until I decide to stop. So distance made fulfillment of the obligations of kinship difficult to the point where they could be disregarded. Identification of one's kin in a society where kinship is, is fundamental, but where inevitably kindreds overlap is never a simple business. The nature of the Scottish kin group reduced the complexities as far as possible, so it remained strong. This was true also of lordship. There is extensive evidence about late medieval and early modern lordship because of the remarkable survival of some 800 contracts made between 1450 and 1603 either by lords promising mutual support or in the great majority of cases by lords and their men binding themselves to protect and serve one another contracts of friendship and bonds of maintenance and man rent they show that lordship was seen in terms of kinship and involved the same obligations Men who are not kinsmen of a great lord undertook and wrote down the obligations that were natural to, and therefore unwritten by, the kin. They used the language of kinship. The word friend still carried something of its original connotation of kinsman, referring to someone who would act as kin. Kindness, kinship, turns up repeatedly. Okay, so let me make a, a brief stop on the quote here. These bonds of manrent and maintenance, bonds of friendship that were assigned, these contracts. This is actually a huge source, uh, primary source during this time period. The Campbell's Black Book of Tamath, I, I think includes a lot of this, this material, and I've read into that a little bit, but it's been a few years since I, since I did that. But these, these 
contracts are written up and preserved in Scottish records, they actually are a pretty good source to find out what was going on back then. And and it's interesting. So what she's saying here is that in cases where uh, a person of less social standing, their title is not as high as another guy's, they will f they will sign one of these bonds between them, and they're not related to each other. That would already produce a, a tie. Yet they would use this, they would express the obligation in terms of kinship because that is how Scottish society was organized at this time period. And, and I think we've, we're gaining a pretty strong foundation on that. That was, that, that straddled the Highland line. And it did so whether you're in the Northeast Aberdeenshire Lowlands or whether you're in Ayrshire Lowlands. So it, it seems, it seems to be universal that kinship is how Scottish society expressed itself in these days. And, and I do, and I'm thinking about other um, trails down this train of thought that I did express when I did this earlier episode. So I encourage you to, if you have not listened to that one, to go back and cover that. So I'm going to keep on going here. Perhaps the most impressive aspect of these bonds is that they were almost all made for life or in perpetuity. It was extremely rare for men to make bonds with more than one lord, and the exceptions sometimes had a particular reason. Dependents of the Campbells of Cawdor and Glenorchy recognized that their immediate allegiance was to the cadet branches of the Campbells of Inverary, earls of Argyle, and therefore refer referred to their higher allegiance. And it was regular practice to reserve allegiance to regents during royal minorities, which was virtually equivalent to the automatic exception in all bonds of allegiance to the crown. Those who did give more than one bond of manrent include a clause stating their previous obligation and on occasion added a promise of neutrality in case of conflict between their lords, as Neil Stewart of Fothergill did in his bond to John, Earl of Athol in 1478. But when, in 1602, Andrew Herring of Little Blair promised his lord, Francis, Earl of Errol, my only dependence, he was speaking in effect for almost all grantors of bonds of man rent. Okay, listen to this real quick. This is starts getting back into really talking about the kin group here. Quote, the heads of smaller kindreds, the Cheneys of Esselmont, the Monroes of Foulis, the Irvins of Drum, the Stuarts of Duror, and countless others bound themselves and their kinsmen and followers to the heads of greater kindreds, the Earls of Errol, Huntley, Argyle, and to them only. Thus again, the problem of divided loyalties was averted. This can hardly have been accidental. The ethos of loyalty was fundamental in theory and of immense importance in practice in a society where men depended so heavily on personal relationships, personal support. The great advantage of the bond of the 15th and 16th centuries was that it was easier to demand single-minded loyalty in return for protection of a man's position and possessions when the personal nature of lordship was once again preeminent than it had been when service was associated with land, for no, no lord could prevent his vassals acquiring fiefs from others. And that's all I'm going to quote from the book for right now. Now, I'm going to reach out by name to some of my listeners here who have brought up things like this. I think, and I didn't, I didn't have this prepared in my, in my notes. In fact, I, I really didn't make any notes for this particular, um, for this particular episode. I really just, just uh, went back on, just wanted to share some thoughts and things. I just, I wanted it to be pretty, pretty informal. Um, let me, I actually think that, and I'm looking at a specific listener who I've quoted at length in here, and I'm, if I can confirm this here as I scroll down, I found his, his comments here. Yes, I found you. Sam Reed. I, yours was the name that came to my head, but I just wanted to make for sure that it was you that had talked about this, and so I'm actually looking at your comments in the, on the Scottish Clans Facebook page. And as you, because you, you're, 
the thing that I've, I've enjoyed about your feedback is that your mind's running on this concept of clan versus not a clan, kindred versus not kindred, and and it gets into talking about um, it, we, we, your your comment here. You get to talking about really it could depend a lot more upon whose territory a smaller kindred is in. If they're in the territory of a larger kindred, then it doesn't matter whether they're actually kin to them or not. That's more important. So what I, I guess what I would, as I bring that comment and what I've just read to you together, is that the the loyalty of a smaller kin group to follow a bigger kin group was not mutually exclusive of the the kindred that they already had. So in Sam Reed's comment here that I'm going to read from, he says, I suspect that McInnes is living in the Clan Ronald territories, probably saw themselves as Clan Ronald people, more so because that's whose land they lived on and less because they shared a common McDonald ancestor. So the McInneses, and if you, if, you, if you didn't catch that episode, we're talking about McInneses being, the, the name is McInnes, McAngus, basically, and possibly descending from either Angus Og or Angus Moore, who were prominent. Um, they were they were the lords of the Isles, and and prominent people that the a branch of the family would take their name from. So even though they started going by McInnes or or descendants or sons of the sons of Angus, um, they were McDonalds. And Sam Reed's here saying that that's less relevant than the fact that they lived in Clan Ronald territory. Well, they're not they're not two different things. Let's say that the McInneses were not another branch of McDonald's. Let's say they're a completely unrelated kin group. Their loyalty to the Clan Ronald chief would not be mutually exclusive with their their loyalty to their own their own kin group. It would be recognized and accepted that they were a a smaller kin group. And in this, with this convention of the bonds, the bonds of man rent, the bonds of friendship, that was a way that they could tie themselves with the stronger kin group, who is, has a higher position, more power, and so both parties are benefited. And now here's why both parties are benefited. Jenny Warmald goes on to say, Doctor Warmald, that the the smaller kin groups. Just because they were, uh, let's let's not say smaller kin groups because I'm not talking necessarily about number right here. I'm talking about a lower station, a lower title. They're not. Let's say they're not an earl, but they may be very very important in that locality because their kin group there is very strong, and it and it might be in a place where the their feudal superior does not have as strong of a kin base there. So he needs, to, in order to execute his responsibilities in that area and do it effectively, he needs to have that more localized kin group on the same page. And so we have the, and it, it might be a smaller kin group numbers-wise, or it might be just that they're not, they're not as as high, just as they're just not as high ranking. Let me actually. Um, I'm going to go back into Dr. Warmald's stuff here because he talks a little bit about that here. If I can find it, the um, I'm, I'm going to try to not take up your time with part of this that doesn't matter as much. She says, The essential feature of a bond of man rent was that it was an obligation by a lesser man to a greater. But it may be that these bonds did not so much reflect established order as provide a means of bolstering it up. The Gordons... Campbells, Montgomerys, singled out by the crown and given earldoms, were not immediately distinguishable from their former social equals, the barons and lairds. So, just so I'm going to pause right there for those of you, and I had to look this up. The in in the Scottish hierarchy, an earl is is very high. Down from an earl is a baron, and down from a baron is a laird. These these titles, the earls, barons. Uh, the, the English version would be a lord, not a laird, as, as far as linguistics is concerned. They, they're not equivalent. They don't transfer straight across, all right? So if you're studying this and you're getting going to get into the feudal order of everything, Scotland's different than, than England. So 
So just want to point that out because she uses terms that have very specific meanings here. And so I'm going to read that sentence again, and I'm going to keep on going. The Gordons, Campbells, Montgomerys, singled out by the crown and given earldoms, were not immediately distinguishable from their former social equals, the barons and lairds, in terms of their wealth and standing. Okay, so just because they, they moved up a notch on the feudal ladder, a, a rung on the feudal ladder, does not mean that they're, in, in terms of wealth, in terms of land, or, or anything else that you're going to measure it by, it's, they're not necessarily way farther ahead than some of the people that were in, right before that change happened, their equals. So to continue quoting, some families did build up vast estates, but that took time. Some, like the Earls of Errol, never seemed to have held significantly more land than a great local family like the Cheneys of Esselmont. One piece of evidence that suggests the extent of the problem for those new committal families is the list of hostages for James I in 1424, which gives their money values. Now, before I go on quoting from there, the, the uh, committal, I wanted to define that word for you, a committal, it's, it's, so it's uh, comis is the Latin uh, equivalent or phrase for, it translates to what the Scots considered an earl. Here, so when it says the new committal families, it's the new families who have just achieved an earldom, or become earls. All right. So it talks about the the evidence that suggests the extent of the problem for this new committal families is the list of hostages for James the First in 1424, which gives their money values. Campbell of Argyle was already among the wealthiest. So that's interesting because this is 1424. Um, this that's they don't that's almost a hundred years before they become earls. But at the lowest level was Alexander, Lord of Gordon, valued at four hundred mercs, worth only half as much as Hay of Errol, whose descendants as earls of Errol were always junior partners of the Gordon earls of Huntley, and worth less also than Dunbar of Cumnock, whose family would later as lairds give bonds of man rent to the earls of Huntley. In these circumstances, the, the written bond was an ideal way for these new families to assert superiority. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm sharing this on, a, on an episode for this podcast and that to help you understand the dynamics and the interactions between one kin group and another. So we've established that in the course of this podcast that... The, all of Scotland lived in a kin-based society at, at some point, at, at least during this time period that this book covers, and before. Now, what I don't know is that later, as the power of... So, this book goes up to fourteen or 1625. That's the extent of the time period covered by Dr. Warmald here. And James the Sixth of Scotland becomes James the First of England before this, before before the, so there's overlap, I guess is what I'm saying here. And and I don't know, she does talk about, and I'm not going to go back and quote her on this because I've already closed the book and I'd have to take time to find the page again, but she does say that there is, there's a, a weakening of the system when the these local people who are so important start gravitating toward the central government and start spending a lot more time there. And I think, and I have not explored this further, but there's probably a connection there between that and the weakening of the clan system and the concept of duach, and which was the, the Gallic word for this concept, that this, this land, this territory that our kin group occupies. Is, it's, part, it's not just land. It's not our, just, it's, it goes farther than territory. It's this is our heritage. This is who we are. This, our, our souls are tied into these hills and streams and, and straths and glens and, and mountainsides. So, so there, it, it's, it's a very, the concept of duach is uh, almost spiritual, you could say. And that, that concept starts to weaken as these both, both, uh, both higher and lower ranking people, but who are, who are the heads of these kin groups and important for keeping this kin-based society together as they start gravitating toward the, where the party's at, I guess you could say. 
They spend more time in Edinburgh, and some of them more time in London, especially after James of Scotland inherits his, the English throne and starts spending more time down there. And so you have some of these people are spending time down in London now. And there, that creates this distance with their, their kin group. Now, that doesn't happen all at once. It's a very gradual thing. And, and clear up into the Battle of, of Culloden and that, that, the 45 Jacobite rising, you have this kin group in effect. And I'm, and you know what? Even though the, the Battle of Culloden really, and, and the, the, the repercussions that happen afterwards and, and the, the route, not just the route in a military standpoint that that became, but the route culturally that became and the laws that were enacted afterwards. It, yeah, a, a chief lost his ability to just call up his own private little standing army, except for the Earl of Athol. They still have the last private army in Scotland. I don't know how much action they've seen in the last several generations, but they still have it. They, uh, Even though a chief st- ceased to be a chief in that sense, as a warlord, as a war leader, as responsible for the protection and the honor and defense of his clan, that goes away, but I'm still not sure that this concept of kinship just immediately is done. Once again, that's where we like to, to box things up in their tight little their tight little um, compartments, and this goes over here, and this goes over here, and yes, the 1746 Battle of Culloden officially ended clanship. Once, well, what aspect of clans, clanship was done by then? And I, I would say that there's probably elements of clanship that goes well beyond that battle, and, uh, and I have not studied that, I've got to admit, as in-depth. But maybe that'd be something that either I'll get to eventually or one of you can beat me to it and share some things with me that I can then again share either on the podcast or uh, now that I've switched over from a Facebook page to a Facebook group, you can post it there and it's there for everybody to see. So, And by the time I publish this podcast, the link, because some of you have expressed frustration that you can't, it's, it's hard to find the, the group. So it should be, first of all, I'll give you the, I'll give you the um, the URL, the the web the web address for the Scottish Clans Facebook group. It's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash forward slash the the Scottish Clans. And in that case, I actually did get the Scottish Clans title because in the Facebook gr- um, page, it had to be Clans of Scotland because somebody else had a Facebook page called. Scottish clan. So here, I got it. It's more straightforward. So there's another way that we've improved it. Facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash the clans of Scotland. So you can go there and, and you if you find out more about this, you can just post it right on there and share it with everybody right away and people can, um, they can see what you shared, which before I had to be the middleman with all of the communication. Somebody had hooked me up with this great additional information that shed light on something we talked about recently, and then I'd, I'd have to read that, and then I'd have to then share it, which I guess I could have just copied and pasted into the feed, but this is a one that's just cutting that step out of it, and and you guys can interact directly with each other on this if you're, and if you're, if you're finding information that would be good for the the group here. So anyway, this kinship idea goes, goes far, it doesn't evaporate all at once, but the weakenings of it began a long time before the Battle of Culloden, I think, as, as we get this, the sacred nature of the relationship between a chief and his kin group begins to erode before that 45 Jacobite, the 1745 Jacobite rising. And in, in, if that wasn't the case, you would not have seen the clearances that happened. I'm, you could probably argue that that erosion happened earlier in the lowlands. And maybe that's why we, in our heads, associate so much more readily the highlands with the clans. And and the borders, I should say. But you know, I, the borders, that's kind of an interesting thing because border reavers ceased to be border reavers in the early 1600s. That concept of... The great border lairds being able to, or the heads of the the kindreds of the borders, being able to call up, you know, a thousand guys and put them in the saddle and go take it to somebody, whether it's the English or a rival Scottish kindred, um, 
that that capability that that goes away in the early 1600s. King James did everything he could to to really get a grip on the borders. He did not want that to be a a no man's land of just complete chaos as it had been in generations previously and and up to within his lifetime. Which is interesting because if you go back to Ireland and some of the things that were happening there and the kin groups that are happening there. See, I, with this, before I go into that, this concept of kinship in the British Isles is, is fascinating. And in this podcast, we have not even covered. There's so much to dive into. It can go so deep. We haven't, we've barely, barely, barely touched on Irish clans and the kin groups there. And there's a lot more to explore there. It was very formally drawn out in the Brehan Laws. Brehan Laws? Brehan? B-R-E-H-O-N. I need to hear somebody pronounce it in Gaelic. but um, Or in in Ireland, they call it, if they're speaking English, they call it Irish. The, the language. They, I don't, from my understanding, and I've tried to research in on this a little bit, they don't use the term Gaelic even though that's how they pronounce it in Ireland, rather than Scotland, it's Gaelic, um, or something closer to that. In in Ireland, they, they, they if they're going to say that word, they say Gaelic. But when they're referring to the language and they're ta- speaking in English, they'll use the word Irish to refer to the language more often. In Irish itself, it's the word is Gaelga. They uh, that those those kindreds there that we've only barely scratched the surface, just barely touched on there. I mean, we could we could go into that so far. And that, and it was so, like I was saying, codified and ex- spelled out in their laws. And this group of people on this level has this name and on this level has this name. And, and that that system, they, the Battle of Kinsale was not a good day for, for the Irish Gales. And it's interesting that today, whereas we, in our heads, we associate the north of Ireland, which is very, it's part of the United Kingdom. And it, it's, you know, maybe some people think not as Irish as the rest of Ireland. And I know that there's some people that might want to punch me in the face for saying that. I'm just telling you as an outsider, somebody who's not Irish, not living on the ground there, that's the perception is that you have these six counties in Northern Ireland who belong to the UK and have received extensive settlement from Scotland, England, Wales. But the, the ironic thing is, as England tightened their grip on Ireland, Northern Ireland, the province of or the kingdom of Ulster, they were the holdouts. That was the, the Gaelic stronghold. That's where your hardcore holdouts were still up, up in Ulster. Whereas England had a grip on this, so it's very ironic that today, and they and they they fixed the English fixed that they they took care of that, and it's a fix for the English, not for the Irish. I'm not wanting to sound like I'm I've got ancestors on uh, both sides of the of the deal here. Actually, probably a lot more on the UK side than on the native Irish side, but um, I, I'm I'm not exp- I don't want to don't read too far into that comment. It wasn't a fix for the local. Gales and the Catholic Irish, but the, my point here is that the the Irish kinship, kin based society, it seems to have had a life ex, ex, a lifespan or a long I shouldn't say longevity because it implies that we're going to start talk about origins as well. And I'm not getting oranges. I'm just talking about when it went away. It looks similar to the borders in Scotland. Anyway, jumping back into um, to this concept of kinship in these different levels. So these these higher level guys in title still needed these lower level guys in title. These lower level guys, as we've just seen, A, they may have been more wealthy. They just didn't have an earldom. And B, they might have had had more land. So that's in one way or the other, these these lower level, if they're a laird or a baron, in both cases, below an earl. But the earl still needed these guys, and he needed their kindreds. He needed these guys not just because of the one guy, but he needed them because they were the head of the kindred in that area. And that is how Scottish society functioned during this time period. 
So I, I just wanted to convey that to you. I thought it'd be very helpful as we seek to really understand, especially, and, and I don't, whether you live in Scotland, Australia, United States, Canada, and, and a handful of other places where my, <laughs> I say this with kind of a grin, dozens of listeners, wherever you live, we, we, we don't live back then, and it's not entirely clear. The, the United States, and you know, speaking as a Westerner from the United States, there's a lot of romanticism that has grown up around the West, you know. Think, if you're not from the Western United States, you're either from the Eastern States or you're from the British Isles. And you, when you think of the American West, you probably have certain images that come up into your head if you've ever seen a Western-type movie before or you've ever read a Louis L'Amour novel. There's... So there's a lot of romanticism swirling around a core of history. And there's a lot of stuff that wasn't historical. And unless you're going to actually really study it, you probably don't know where the myth, where the, the line is between the myth and the, the actual history. And so I think this information that I just pulled from from Dr. Warmald here in her book like I said, I'll have a link for that on the Scottish Clans Facebook group and maybe even in the show notes for this episode. But I, uh, I thank you for joining me. I'm glad that we could have this talk and, and I'll, uh, I, uh, I think this will be helpful to understanding what was really going on in that time period. But until then, until the next episode, thank you for joining with me today. Feel free to respond. I already gave you as pretty clear about the, I think, about the Facebook group and how to find that. Uh, also, you can interact with me on Podbean, which you can either go to podbean.com and find Scottish Clans podcast on there, or you can go to, and you, there, there, there's a mechanism on there for, for leaving comments, or you can go to Apple Podcasts if, and that's my statistics from Podbean show that that's the vast majority of of you listeners are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, and that's a place where you can go and leave a review. and And in the review, you can leave comments. You can leave me as many stars as as you will, and um, and then include whatever your feedback for this, whether it's whether it's how to make the podcast better, what you like about it that you need me to keep on doing, or just a question you have. And I've got a lot of episodes where I've responded to this type of feedback, whether it's from Facebook, Podbean, or the Apple Podcast. So thank you for interacting with me. Thank you for letting me nerd out while you listened. And one more favor, share this episode, or not this ep- well, yeah, this episode, but this podcast generally with somebody that you think would be interested in it. So I appreciate you joining with, joining with me for this episode. And until next time, Martian leave Andrasta. <laughs>